Chapter 1, Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waberhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trinsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. Hey, friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me, and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Friends, welcome to another episode of The Happy Hour. I am your host, Jamie Ivey. I'm so excited for our guest that we have today. I sat down with Jamar Tisby and have a phenomenal conversation. You're going to want to lean in close. But before we get to that interview, I want to remind you about our book, Compliment the Surprising Beauty of Choosing Together Over Separate in Marriage. It's been out for just a few days, and we heard such a great response. You guys are saying that this is just what you needed, that it was the pep in your step in your marriage. For those of you that have a marriage that you feel is in a good spot, you say this book is full of reminders of to keep going. For those of you that say, man, I'm feeling a little dry. You've told me that this book has been like a little bit of a water to your soul. My husband, Aaron, and I, as we wrote this book, we never imagined writing a book to tell you how to have the best marriage because we're still working on our marriage day and day and day. But we do believe that God has something really special for those of us that are in marriages. We don't believe that marriage is the ultimate calling on any of our lives. But for those of us that he gives us the opportunity to be married, we think is a unique way that we can show the world the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we hope that you see that in this book, Compliment. It's two books in one. My husband, Aaron, wrote a book and I wrote a book and you get both of those books when you purchase the book. You can find it anywhere you get books. Compliment, The Surprising Beauty of Choosing Together Over Separate in Marriage. It also has a Bible study that goes along with it as well. So if you want to dive deeper into the word of God, check that out as well. All right, guys, buckle up because today is an interview to go in the books. Jamar Tisby sat down with me and we talk about important things today. Jamar wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Color of Compromise, which I've heard such great things about. His new book, How to Fight Racism, which just released this year, is so good and I highly recommend it. Today we jump into that and he answers questions like, what can we do about racism and why it's important to care about? He tackles hard topics like death penalty and mass incarceration and the importance of justice. He also dives into the difference between racial justice and racial reconciliation and the church's role in valuing both diversity and justice. It is a really, really deep conversation, one that I could have had for a whole nother hour. So sit back, grab a pen and paper. You're going to need one and enjoy my conversation with Jamar Tisby, author of How to Fight Racism. Uh, Jamar, welcome to the happy hour. I feel welcome at the happy hour. Thank you for having me. This is the best. I um, wish that you and your wife and me and my husband were actually having a real happy hour, but this will have to suffice yeah, for now. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> you and I will hang out. But uh, welcome to the show. Introduce yourself to all of our listeners about your family and what you do and all the things. Yeah, yeah. My name is Jamar Tisby. I wear a lot of hats. I'm the CEO and founder of The Witness, and I also am a PhD candidate in history. I do a good bit of preaching and teaching at my church, and I am an author and a speaker. So all of that keeps me 
out of trouble or in trouble, depending on your perspective. <laughs> Married, we have one child, and I live in the Mississippi Delta, but on the Arkansas side of the Delta. Okay. Been here for most of my adult life. Wow. Wow. You do wear so many hats. I mean, when I was looking at everything that you're doing right now and you're getting a doctorate and you're writing books and both of these books, you have a book, The Color of Compromise, which I believe 2019, right. am I right? Yep. This came out 2019. And then your newest book, How to Fight Racism, just came out last fall. Am I right? Yeah. January of 21. Wait, it just came out this year. Yes. How did I miss yes. that? Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> so I'm new to it. But well, you just got so much going on. And so I'm grateful for you and all that you're doing. You also host a podcast. And so <laughs> tell us about your podcast because we're podcast listeners here. Yes, obviously. Yes. Oh, it's so much fun. It's called Pass the Mic. I just ride the coattails of my co-host, Tyler Burns, who is the brains and the colorful personality on the show. But we talk about everything from politics to current events to culture, all from a black Christian perspective. We've been going since 2013. So it feels like a long time, but our listeners are fantastic. And it's just so much fun to be able to do it with a good friend and a brother in Christ. I just love podcasting so much. I mean, I'm thinking this is such a fun job that I have this part of my job podcasting. And I'm a fan of y'all's show. So I listen to it often. So everyone should go check that out as well. Okay, Jamar, your newest book, which thank you for correcting me, came out this January, actually, How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity and the Journey Towards Racial Justice. Now, I know how book writing goes because I've written some books. We know what 2020 held <laughs> in our country. When were you writing this book is my number one question. Yeah, in real time. <laughs> As everything okay. was going on with the uh, racial justice uprisings in 2020. I mean, the bulk of the drafting came in the first half of 2020 in spurts. But I mean, the, the landscape was changing so quickly. Hourly, it seemed like sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the introduction yeah. was so hard to write just because like, where do you start? And at some point you could just got to say, okay, I wrote the book when I wrote the book. Things may have changed by the time you read it. Wow. I was wondering about that, knowing that it just came out and it felt so current and it felt so like was meeting such a big felt need. Now, I would like to know too, how did this book come about? Mm -hmm. Like, how did you come up with the things that you've written in this book? Because because you do say this really is a how-to book. And correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that you are kind of putting this book out there mostly for us white people as to how to be part of the change towards racial justice. And so where did all of this content come mm -hmm. from that you put in this book? So a couple of things. Number one, I thought this is the book I wanted to write first. <laughs> like I was just so eager, anxious even to, to have some resource out there to help folks get going and to take action. Mm -hmm. And I do think building awareness is an action. It's just not the only action that we need to do. So I really wanted this book to be out there sooner. And my first book, The Color of Compromise, I'm so glad I wrote that because it sort of tells us what the problem is. How do you work towards solutions if you don't really understand the problem? But even then, that whole book is a setup to get you to the last chapter, which is called The Fierce Urgency of Now. And it's all about the sort of practical steps that you can take. How to Fight Racism basically takes that one chapter fleshes it out in an entire book. Also say I wrote this with a good bit of trepidation. So, you know, writing The Color of Compromise, which is a historical survey, that's right up my alley <laughs> as far as, you know, being a student of history, learning from experts. This is what I do kind of a thing. 
This book, How to Fight Racism, is a little bit more speculative in that it deals with the present and the future. And it's unavoidably speculative in that sense. I also felt some trepidation in the sense that even if you want to work for racial justice, there's lots of different ways to do it. And so good people can disagree on strategy. What I finally came down to as I'm dealing with, you know, all of this insecurity about how can I write this book, right? What I finally came down with is, well, I've been a black man my entire life. <laughs> so right. I have experienced this. I've also been speaking, writing, talking publicly about racial justice for the past decade in various capacities. And so you asked how I came up with this. A lot of it is through my personal experience. A lot of it is through interacting with people who have been helpful on my journey. And all of that is to say, there's so much more that could be here. Mm. But I just had to speak out of what I've been through, what I saw as true and helpful and effective, and hoping and praying that it is that way for readers. Well, I'm grateful for that. You said just a minute ago, you said awareness is is great, you know, and awareness is good. But you talk about this holistic approach in your book. You said at the stage with this holistic approach to racial justice and why that's so important. Can you walk us through that arc method that you have set out in the book? You know, I was really frustrated with myself in this racial justice conversations because everywhere I would go to speak or write about racial justice, you always get that one question. What do we do? And that's a right. great question. I love that question because A, it says people recognize racism is an urgent issue right now and not just a problem of the past. And B, it says, I want to be part of the solution. I want to do something about it. So I love getting that question, but I was frustrated with myself not being able to answer it well enough, especially in a sort of Q&A format. You only have like 60 seconds to say something. <laughs> right. And so it would be whatever was sort of high on my mind right then. Over time, this probably started six or seven years ago, I began developing this framework I call the Arc of Racial Justice. And it stands for Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. And what I just observed was not just in my answers, but as I'm looking at activists and, and people fighting for racial justice, you know, anything that they recommend can fall in one of these three categories. And wouldn't it be great if we had them all in mind as we're structuring our own racial justice practices. So it's pretty self-explanatory. It's pretty simple. It has to be if someone like me is going to remember it and find it useful. Awareness, that's all the knowledge, the information, the data that we need to understand racism, white supremacy, and how it functions. Relationships, this is a tricky one because the evangelical racial reconciliation movement was all about relationships, all about, you know, just getting people together, and that's going to solve racism. Well, that ain't it, in my view. But I do think that all reconciliation is relational. I think it's very dangerous if we so distance ourselves from people and for people who promote racial justice, if we so distance ourselves from the people we think don't get it. Now, I'm not saying stay in toxic relationships. I'm just saying there is an element of what I call priestly proximity, mm -hmm. where you have to know real human beings, what they're going through, yeah. why they might think what they think. And I think it keeps me humble keeps me from making other people into just this sort of one-dimensional or two-dimensional other that I can easily alienate or dehumanize. But you have to go beyond that, and that's the C part, the commitment, which says that prejudice works out not just through people, but through policies as well. So we got to do something about mass incarceration. We got to do something about maternity-related deaths. We got to do something about voter suppression. All of that goes into the commitment aspect, and I think you need all three to have a holistic approach to racial justice.
I could not agree with you anymore. I love that so much. But I have a question for you. I think so many times people who are saying, okay, I know there's a problem. I want to be a part of the solution. We find ourselves getting in one of these and sticking with one of them. You know what I mean? And so how do we as Christ followers, and, and I wanted to say this up front too, you say in your book and you wrote this, this is for Christians. Like you have this foundation that you are a Jesus follower. So that's like an automatic, we know this is true. So how do we as Christ followers How do we find ourselves spending time in all three of those? And this is a caveat, but I went back and forth on including the word Christian in the title because it really is a book for everyone. Like you can study this in community with anyone. And to the degree that I talk about Christianity, it's not necessarily proselytizing, but it's sort of rooting racial justice practices in foundational teachings like the image of God, foundational teachings like love and justice. And I think those are concepts that anyone, whether they are Christian or don't practice a religion at all, they can latch on to. And so I do want readers to know that this is not a book only for Christians, but I did include it in the title for two reasons. Number one, I didn't want this to be kind of a bait and switch kind of a thing. Like somebody reads How to Fight Racism. And And then you talk about Jesus. Yeah, I'll talk about Jesus, the whole (laughs) book, right? So I was like, just truth in advertising. But number two, and it's sobering to think, but if you read The Color of Compromise, you'll see why I say this. But Christians have been such a big part of creating racism (laughs) that they have to be a big part of dismantling it as well. And so I think we're missing it big time if we try to approach racial justice and we don't include religion, specifically Christianity. (laughs) Now, that was Mm. all a caveat to your original question, which was what? (laughs) Thank you for clarifying that. And I'm glad you said that because you did say this is a basis. My original question, I believe, was how do we do all three of these? Yeah, 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 yeah. So this is a way to sort of constantly interrogate our own practices. It's almost like a car where, you know, somebody will advertise, you know, 41 point inspection, right? These are many different ways to evaluate the robustness of our racial justice work. So in practice, what this looks like, and I'm excited because we're about to do this in our online book study group. The last week of a, of a six-week study, we're going to do something called From Moment to Movement, a racial justice planning session. And this is new even for me, but I'm going to sit down and facilitate with people a two-hour session where we brainstorm, where we plan, and where we execute on racial justice. And what we're going to do in that is use the arc of racial justice as a framework. So in planning, you know, what are the ways we are intentionally proactively going to build our knowledge? So that's going to mean honing in on particular topics. Is it history? Is it sociology? Is it this period of time? Is it that period of time? Is it theology? Whatever it might be. Also, relationships. How are we going to intentionally cultivate relationships that are going to help us build our racial justice capacity? And then commitment. You know, what issue or series of issues are we actually going to take action on? So I think it helps us individually. I also think it helps us organizationally. So if you are part of a church, a business, a corporation, whatever it might be, you need these three components and you can actually structure your plan around awareness, relationships, commitment to make sure that you're not just putting on events that, you know, fill people's heads, that you're not just focusing on, you know, that you break the echo chamber of your relationships and that you have 
effective policy practices that are going to change the racial justice landscape and make it more equitable. So I think those are a couple of ways we can use that. I love that so much. When is that? When when are you doing that process? So that'll be the week of March 11th. It'll be the second week in March. So we have a Facebook study group going now at facebook.com slash groups slash HTFR community, HTFR community. Awesome. Okay, well, this is airing March 10th. And so if someone's listening, Perfect. is there even an opportunity to get in like today? Yes, tomorrow? yes, yes. Okay. You just go request access. There's a short questionnaire okay. that says you're not going to be a troll. And then uh, <laughs> you're in. You're in, baby. Good. I love it. No trolls invited. But if you're not that, you can come. You know, Jamar, one of the things I found very interesting in the beginning of this book How to Fight Racism that you just released is you talk about telling the truth of our own racial lives. Mm -hmm. You say, until we do that, we will never be able to tell the truth about our collective racial dilemma. You encourage your readers to write down their own racial autobiography. I was reading that and before I got to the part where you gave us some, some kind of questions to walk through that would help us, I found myself thinking, well, I don't really know that I would have much to say, you know, like I love people. I love Jesus. And then the more questions that you listed, I thought, I think I would have some hard stuff to look at in my life. And, you know, you talk in there and you tell, you say a quote in here that says that, you know, your past may not be attractive company, but it is, it's where you've been. And so we have to talk about it. Tell me about this and why this matters. Like, why is this important for us to do individually before we can tackle a collective racial dilemma? So I call this racial justice practice, I call it writing your own racial autobiography. And I mean, there's so much that goes into it. We just have these unexplored inner lives when it comes to race, especially white people, because the way white supremacy works is that it thrives on invisibility. That means everyone else has a race or is raced, but you as a white person, you're just you, right? You're just John or Mark or Susie or whatever it is, and you maneuver life and whatever happens to you is because of who you are and what you've done. It has nothing to do with your skin color or how this society has structured itself around race. That's what white supremacy tries to tell you. That means you go about life and have these experiences and you don't look at it through a racial lens, even though you're experiencing it through a racialized society, right? So it is a very necessary practice on the part of the majority to stop and say, what is my earliest memory of race? Have I ever used a racial epithet? What did my parents teach me about race? When this big racial event happened in the world, What did my church say or do? What did my family say or do? Those kinds of things need interrogation because until we do that inner work, it's going to be hard to do that external work of racial justice. Mm -hmm. For people of color and black people too, there's a lot of trauma around race. There can be a lot of pride. I'm very proud of my African-American heritage and of being black. But at the same time, there's some very painful memories. And what we do with trauma initially is try to lock it away, try to not think about it. And so writing our racial autobiography is part of, I think, the process of healing where we can go back, explore those pain points, name it, articulate it, and take and have power over it so that it doesn't have power over us. It's so good. We did an interview a couple of weeks ago with Faith Brooks, and we talked about why Black History Month matters. And I was vulnerable with her and shared that in high school, remember saying, I don't understand why we have Black History Month. Why don't we have White History Month? Embarrassing, but I'll go first and say, you know, that would be part of my like mm-hmm. racial autobiography that you're talking about. And when I was reading your book, I've been thinking about that conversation a lot and how I said that publicly to Faith and maybe wishing I wouldn't have said it in front of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, <laughs> but whatever, it's there. I'll go first. 
But it made me think about how I'm really open about maybe like past big sin struggles that I've had in my life before I was following Jesus, even after I followed Jesus, even now, like I will publicly proclaim because I believe Jesus is so good. And I believe that he, he covers our sins. I believe that we are new creation, but I found myself when I said that to faith, wishing I wouldn't have said it out loud, but your book showed me I can own that. And it doesn't have power over me because I don't believe that anymore. And so I want to say that just to encourage people that I think that's a difficult practice. What you said in the book for white people to go through because our list is long, mm. you know, like as I started diving in that, I mean, another example, again, I don't know what I was doing with my life in high school, but I remember when um, OJ Simpson was not convicted of murder of Nicole Brown Simpson and her friend. I've never told the story publicly either, Jamar. So here we go. We're in our English class. I'm probably a junior or senior in high school and we're watching the trial and everyone remembers it, you know, that he was acquitted. And I remember the sister of the man that was killed bawling. And there were some black friends in the class. They were so excited about this decision. And I remember thinking, I can't believe how excited they are. It's clear. We all know O.J. Simpson murdered his ex-wife. Years later, because of awareness, because of relationships, because of my journey and understanding more what my black friends have gone through in America, in the 60s, all the things, I learned about Rodney King. And I learned about the injustice that happened in that city. And I learned about the history of the police in that city. And all the dots came together for me. And I thought, okay, so put aside whether O.J. Simpson murdered his wife or not. It was this sense of relief for a black community. And so that's another one of my just like if I were to look back, I remember thinking so poorly about these black people who were celebrating this. And now with a little bit of wisdom under my belt, do I still think it doesn't matter? But yes, of course, I think O.J. Simpson murdered his. But I can look back at that moment and go. I now see why they were that way, why they were celebrated. Is that what you're talking about? Precisely. And you telling your story reminded me of that exact moment with my black family and seeing Simpson acquitted. And it was this sense of, I mean, we weren't like toasting and jumping right. up and down, but it was a sense of because it was still within the sort of historical penumbra of Rodney King's brutalizers all being acquitted. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And there was so much anger. In fact, there was an uprising in L.A. as a result of that. And it was still within, you know, that was a fresh memory. And so when Simpson was acquitted again, it wasn't about his individual case per se, but it was about the so-called justice system sort of giving a black man a break for once, even though this particular black man. (laughs) Right. But I still think I can look at that and put aside his guilt or innocence. And I saw through a new lens. Yep. Yep. As to what that might have been like for you and your family and, you know, the students that were in my classroom. And so that was one example that came to mind as I was reading that. And so I just want to encourage listeners that that actually, it upset me when I think about that. It could lead me to tears a little bit and I can feel very guilty and very shameful and very embarrassed. But yet I can also say, man, praise God for the growth in my own personal life. So I think one point to tease out that I hope will will be helpful for people is that especially in cases of the criminal justice system and instances of police brutality, we have to be able to look at individual circumstances as well as systemic patterns. Perfect example is when Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson, and it sort of made Black Lives Matter this national, international movement and phrase. So much of the argument over what happened was about 
folks looking at the isolated incident, the altercation between Mike Brown and Darren Wilson, and people looking at the pattern of anti-Black police brutality. And it was so illustrative, the Department of Justice got involved and they wrote two reports, two reports. One was about the actual altercation, which said that Mike Brown probably had come into physical contact with Darren Wilson. There was some sort of, you know, physical grappling or something. And this was a big reason why the officer was acquitted, right? But the other report was on the Ferguson Police Department. And they came out with a list of startling facts that basically said, number one, the Ferguson PD, under orders from some of the city administration, was basically using the black community as a source of revenue as they ticketed people, as they put them in jail. The other was a pattern of police brutality and mistrust between the community. And so both of those things are true at the individual level. You know, it's likely he didn't have his hands up. Remember that phrase, hands up, don't shoot. It's likely that was not accurate at the individual level. But at the systemic level, there was no reason for Mike Brown and his friend to have any positive association with the police. So that's just one thing, right? And for Black people, especially, we understand the pattern of police brutality. Going all the way back, you know, just to the Black Panthers, we could go further. It was the Black Panther Party for self-defense. Self-defense against whom? The police who were brutalizing people in their community. And so when we see those instances, whether in the courts or with the cops, we're thinking of that long scope. And so I just wanted to tease that point out. This is the tip of the spear of the movement right now. Yeah. The murder of George Floyd is really sort of the straw that broke the camel's back and led to all these uprisings in 2020. That's anti-Black police brutality. And that is something that we cannot forget in our current racial justice movement. If you don't know it, guys, I'm a Texas girl through and through. I've lived here most of my life. I was born here and I love traveling. Here's why I love traveling throughout Texas, because it has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities, which means there's an infinite number of different travel experiences. And no two travelers are exactly alike. And it means that no two trips should be either. If you're a beach person, well, you can have fun under the sun with Texas's 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies cannot get enough of Texas's world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a -a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interest. Guys, come visit my state. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. It's so good. And, you know, it's it's no surprise to you as a historian that you spend some time talking just like you did now about the key, you know, that we have to learn from our past and to see the historical context of what we're dealing with here. I mean, the same thing was with, you know, when Breonna Taylor was, you know, murdered in her home. There's some historical context to that neighborhood and the police that matters yes. in the conversation. It matters when you're having that conversation and that's sometimes left out. Don't get me going. Don't get me going. <laughs> Listen, because... Well, go for a second, Jamar. I'm here for it. <laughs> one of the main reasons why I started a PhD in history was because of what happened in Ferguson. And as I'm reading and trying to make sense of it, just like a whole bunch of people, 
the stories that gripped me most were the ones by historians who could tell me about redlining and how you came to have a predominantly black community like Ferguson being policed by a predominantly white police force. How you can go all the way back. There's this great article by a, a independent historian, Carrie Lee Merritt, called One Continuous Graveyard. It's on blackperspectives.com. And she goes all the way back to the Civil War and makes the point that prior to the Civil War, most cities did not hand, have a standing police force. They didn't have a line item in the budget. If there was a problem, you got a posse, you rounded up men with guns, and they took care of the problem, which was mostly poor white people because all the black people were under the control of race-based chattel slavery. Not until after emancipation, when you got three million freed black folks wandering around, do municipalities all of a sudden say, hey, we need people with guns on call to control, you know, these black folks now. And this leads to, you know, things like convict leasing. It leads to things like the black codes. And anyway, my point being that history, that context, even for just this one specific important current event, one of the things historians say is that everything has a history. And I just became gripped with the power of the knowledge of knowing the historical context that got us to that moment, not just to know about the past, but to know what we can do in the present to fix things. Mm. You know, one of the things with doing that racial autobiography that you talk about, and you mentioned white supremacy, and I know that a lot of people would say, and, and I mean, a lot of white people would say, Jamar, like, I'm not racist, like, you know. I love all people. And they might even go as far to say, like, I don't even see color. Everyone looks the same to me, which you can talk about that as well if you want. I've never used the N-word, all the things. But yet you mentioned about white supremacy is embedded in so many of our systems, which I believe to be true. And I know there's a lot of, I call them distractions around that conversation. I didn't write down the quote, so forgive me if I get it wrong, but I believe you even talked about White supremacy looks different now. It could be like mass incarcerations. You mentioned, you know, the maternal death rate of black women. So talk about that a little bit for the person who's going, okay, this is great, Jamar, Jamie, but this is for somebody yes, else. This is yes. not for me. Such a good question. Yeah. So it's not enough to be not racist. You have to be actively anti-racist because the inertia of society is toward racism, is toward white supremacy. So the social psychologist Beverly Daniel Tatum uses the pedway analogy. Back in the day when we used to go to airport, there was these pedways. They're like human conveyor belts. And you can get on and the people who are really in a rush get on and they walk in the same direction as a pedway. So they get there faster. Those are active racists, right? Those are the Proud Boys. Those are Ku Klux Klan, whatever it might be. Then there are the people who get on the pedway and they stand to the side. They're standing still, but the pedway is still moving. So guess what? They still end up in the same place. So these are the passive racists, right? You're not actively doing anything to promote racism, but just by being on that escalator of white supremacy, you're headed in that direction, right? What we have to do is, unfortunately, we're all sort of on that pedway, but we got to turn around and head the opposite direction. That's being actively anti-racist. So for the people who say, I'm not racist, what you're probably thinking of is a very common American Christian evangelical way of thinking about race, which is highly individualistic. The problem of race in this framework is personal attitudes toward other people. So it's people saying the N-word, it's people you know, discriminating or having prejudice towards someone else. So guess what? If I'm not mean to other people, if some of my best friends are black, if I'm nice across the racial and ethnic spectrum quote unquote, I am not a racist. Okay. I say, great. Keep doing that. Don't go the other direction. But that's necessary. It's not sufficient. 
So what we have to do is think on a broader scale, what actually brings equity. And so these are the things in the last three chapters of the book that I talk about in terms of working for racial justice on a systemic basis. For instance, abolishing the death penalty. Since 1973, 165 people have been found innocent who have been sentenced to death row. 42% of people on death row are black, even though we make up only 13% of the population. Things like eliminating cash bail. I encourage you to, to look up Khalif Browder and his tragic story. This boy, he was a young man, teenager, just couldn't afford cash bail, stayed in prison, mostly in solitary confinement, suffered from mental health issues. Shortly after he was finally released and his case was dismissed, he was not guilty of anything, by the way, he commits suicide. You know, there's lots of different things we can do from reparations to working on making voting accessible to immigration reform. Like that is the turn so many people have to make. And it's not just having your one black friend or your Asian friend or whatever it might be. Okay. I'm going to ask you a hard question. Yeah. You're so good. I think there are people who are like, I hear you. What does it matter? Hmm. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, it matters to me. I told you before we started, and my listeners will know this, because I have three black children. It matters to me because I have close relationship with people that are black. There are so many people, Jamar, who don't know a black person, mm -hmm. which seems weird to me. Yeah. I don't know where you live. But there are so many people. And so I'm afraid that some of them could hear this and be like, that's awesome. It doesn't change anything about my life. Yep. And hear me. I'm asking for the listener. Yeah. That's not me, you guys. <laughs> Just, and that's what is concerning to me a little bit. And I'll go even further. Yeah. And I will even say, I mean, we said we could talk about, you know, white evangelicalism and the things that, that that has brought into. And you even said in your book, you quoted it earlier, but let me quote you for sure. You said, many of the suggestions in how to fight racism pertain especially to white people because white people bear the most responsibility for racism. This is, has to do with a term that can be controversial, white supremacy. But you also talk in here about, and you call it compromise about the church. I'm afraid I see this in so many white Christian people. Am I going to get myself in trouble here, Jamar, because I just want to know. Someone's thinking, what does this matter? Tell me. Tell them, why does it matter? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think part of the reason why we're still talking about racial justice today is because so many people have that attitude is how does this affect me? What does it change yeah. about my life? Or this problem is distant from me because, you know, I may not have a bunch of racial and ethnic minorities in my circle. Well, a couple of things. <laughs> Number one, it matters to Jesus because justice matters to Jesus. I spend a good bit of time in the first few chapters of the book talking about the image of God. So what does that say that in the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, God says, let us make humankind in our image and in our likeness. Mm. Every single person has a fingerprint of God on yeah. them. And that matters, of course, for racial and ethnic relations, right? Matters for a yeah. whole host of other reasons too, gender, class, whatever. We see this throughout the Bible too, of God literally leading the Hebrews out of Egypt and enslaved people, right? Like if you cannot see the relevance of that to our situation in the United States, we, we got a lot more work to do. So it matters to Jesus. So if you're a Christian, it should matter to you. Secondly, world is changing. Whatever's true now is not necessarily going to be true in the future. Already, the younger generations are majority minority. They're not the minority anymore, though. So this sort of 2040, 2050 window, when there's going to be that tipping point where there's not going to be one clear majority of any racial or ethnic group, that's already happening with the younger generation. So where are your nieces and nephews, your sons and daughters? How are they going to be equipped, right? The other thing is these local communities are changing. I was in Iowa 
which is 90% white. And there's a significant Latino population in these towns, which has a lot to do with, you know, frontline working jobs, fair wages, all of that stuff is related to justice, related to racism. But even in tiny, predominantly white, one of the whitest states in the whole union, there is actual diversity. Mm. And it matters because if you don't do something about it, people like me who come into your community are going to be the worst for it. What this is about is preventing harm. And so it's about caring for other people. It's about preventing harm, especially to Black and people of color, but also to yourself. It shrivels your heart not to care about justice. And I would say there is a unique priority for racial justice in a nation that has been so wedded first to race-based chattel slavery, but also to all kinds of forms of racial discrimination ever since then. Mm. So I think no matter where you are, especially if you're a white Christian, recognizing the truth of you know your tradition and its implication, its complicity with racism, owing up to that and doing something about it. So good. I don't know what else to say. I mean, that's your arc too that you're talking about. I mean, you know, that awareness, that relations and that commitment. And so good, Jamar. I mean, I am clapping here if everyone can see me actually <laughs> yes 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 so grateful for that now i'm going to ask you this too and i think you started out the conversation saying that you were a little bit frustrated with not having to answer this question so you wrote this book how to fight racism if someone is actually listening they're like okay like what does it look like to actually do reconciliation the right way i think that so many mm-hmm. white people will will be a part of the conversation and be like okay well now i'm just scared and so i don't know if i'm going to do this right if i'm going to do this wrong am i going to make it worse what does it look like for someone to enter into this like quote unquote the right way So part of it is building our awareness. And my contention is that diversity is a byproduct of justice and not the other way around. So what's happened in the modern racial reconciliation movement among Christians is this push for diverse churches, diverse Christian ministries. That's good, but that shouldn't be the goal necessarily, maybe a goal. But what I've experienced is in fellowships that make diversity the thing, right? Mm -hmm. You get that. But in order to keep that, you have to avoid any sort of subject or dialogue which might cause division because then you're going to lose your diversity. And so it becomes Mm -hmm. this sort of rush to the middle about a lot of issues. And I was in a multi-ethnic church around 2015, 2016 in the presidential election. And what became so readily apparent is that in spite of the fact that we sat next to each other in the pews, that we were in Sunday school together, that we may even hang out, you know, and socialize together a little, not much, that when it came to politics, which is really about sort of public priorities and how we relate to one another, we had a massive chasm between black people and white people, between white people and other people of color. And we never got to it because to do so would jeopardize that diversity that we'd worked so hard to cultivate. But what if we had made justice the focal point? Because what that does is say, you know, a church that's committed to bettering the city in whatever it was, committed to, you know, fully funding public education, for example, right? As a Black person coming into that space, even if it's predominantly white, I know that they understand my struggles and some of the issues that my community faces. And it's going to be easier 
to be part of that community than one that is committed sort of broadly to diversity, but avoids those issues of public justice, right? So that's probably pretty far of your original question. But when you talk about doing racial reconciliation right, I use the word, I don't abandon the word reconciliation because that's a Bible word, right? And Jesus talks about we have the ministry of reconciliation. So I still use that word, but when it comes to talking about this topic, I much more frequently use the term racial justice in the subtitle of the book, because I want people to understand racial reconciliation is a part of a bigger picture of moving toward justice and equity. So how do we do it right? Aim for justice and you're going to get the reconciliation part. That's good. I've never actually heard the flip because if I could just re-say what you're saying and make sure I understand it, you're saying if we just diversify and just put, you know, different people together so that we are diversified, but we don't have a common goal of justice, then we're going to lose everything we had. That's basically what you're Absolutely. saying. Okay. And you risk stagnating because what do you do when you do have that diversity? There are some churches that have it. There's been an increase in what they call multi-ethnic or multi-racial churches where no particular racial or ethnic group comprises more than 80% of the congregation. So what happens when you get that diversity? You're just looking around. It's like, what are we about now? Obviously, we're about Jesus, yes. But Uh to have that goal of justice and to constantly pursue justice, that's going to be something that's with us till Jesus comes back. And it's something that actually pushes us into all kinds of different communities because we're working for justice for the marginalized. We're working for justice for the oppressed. So that means we interact with poor people. We interact with migrants at the border. We interact with Black people in our communities. And so you get that, but it's more meaningful because it's Mm -hmm. not just, hey, you look different or you're from a different place. It's like we're on this journey together to love our neighbors well because we love God. Come on with us. Let's do this together. Yeah. You know, I think um, I've never been to his church, but I've heard Dr. Derwin Gray talk about his church a lot. And I was listening to him on the Holy Post podcast the other day, which I'm just such a big fan about that show. My husband's probably like, stop talking about it because I'm just (laughs) loving it so much. Great. But he was talking about that justice mission with his church and about how, you know, 2016 came along and they had to have hard conversations and it affected white people and black people. And so I understand what you're saying. I'm grateful for that. We don't have enough time to do this, but I want to let everyone know because I have a lot of listeners who are parents. And one of the questions that often comes up is, you know, how do I talk to my kids about race? And, you know, I'm constantly encouraging my white friends who are parenting white children that this conversation matters greatly to them and their families and their children. Obviously, it matters to me. I'm parenting black children. So we have these conversations often. But I'm always like, if you're not having conversations with your white children, somebody is going to be having conversations with them about this. I mean, the sad part about that is you wonder how we see all these young people who rise up like we saw in the riots of white supremacy. And you're like, how are these 18-year-old boys like already indoctrinated? Mm. Well, it's because somebody's talking to them about Mm -hmm. this, you know? And so anyhow, we don't have time, but I want to let my listeners know that you talk about that in your book at the beginning. And I just want to encourage them that if that's one of your questions about how to fight racism and talk to my children, that you address that. And so thank you for that. That's all for my mama listeners out there. Anything else you want to say about this conversation? Well, on that point, I think another way to talk to your kids about racism is also talking to your kids' schools about racism. We really need to hold our schools accountable to making sure that this is part of their regular practice in a healthy way, right? Like there's a lot of awareness that needs to go on in order for someone to effectively teach this and build it into a school culture. I was a sixth grade teacher for four years. I was a middle school principal for another three. And to massage this into the life 
of a school is really important as well. So that's another way that we can help address this topic of racial justice with the next generation. Beyond that, I'll say, you know, 2020 was a year of racial awakening for a lot of people. It put even a book like mine on the New York Times bestseller list as people were clamoring just to find out more and to build their capacity around these conversations. Well, let's move from conversation to action. This book is all about that. When I say practical, I mean practical. Every single chapter has what I call racial justice practices. These are things that you can go out and do. I encourage you to do it with a group, book study group, church study group, whatever. It sort of begs for community and interaction. And even though it's only going to be over a screen in a pandemic, it's a good excuse to get together with people. And what I can't wait, I haven't talked to my publisher about this yet, but it's going to happen. We're going to do an updated and revised version at some point. And I cannot wait to hear stories from the field and include your stories of taking racial action, racial justice action, including your stories in the book to talk about ways that people really put this into practice and are changing their communities, changing their spaces for the better because they love God and they love their neighbor. I love it, Jamar. That's one of the things that's so good about this book, because when you say it's titled How to Fight Racism, you actually give practical things, which for someone like me, I'm always like, okay, here's the problem. Tell me what to do. Here's the problem. Tell me what to do. And so I'm grateful for you. Um, if you want to go back, though, guys, I highly recommend also getting Jamar's other book, The Color of Compromise, which really talks about how we were part of white supremacy, all of those things. Highly recommend that book as well. Jamar, I always finish with what are you loving and what are you reading? So what do you have for me? Okay. <laughs> it's really trivial, but I got to tell you, you know, in this like heavy, heavy work, we got to have light stuff. So I my wife persuaded me, she's been talking to me about it for years, but I finally got a Kindle Paperwhite and I okay. love it because I always struggle with a physical book to like get comfortable, you know, and I'm always highlighting and everything. So I got to switch hands. It's, 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 it's annoying, even though I love physical books. So I finally got a paper white and I'm rereading the Harry Potter series and it has been so fun. It has been just a great way to unplug. My kid is 10 and get to talk about it. And so yeah. it's we've got Lego sets around it. So it's become a whole thing. And just I a love good it. Way I love unplug. it. OK, but I have a question about Kendall because I could read Harry Potter on it, but I couldn't read How to Fight Racism mm. on it. Are there some books that you just can't read on a Kindle? I like my history books to have the physical books, but mostly because I want to build my collection and build my library. <laughs> yeah. When I'm researching, it's great because I can do a keyword search and all that stuff and find oh. exactly what I'm looking for. But yeah, I totally get it. Different genres work better for it. For my pleasure reading, the paper white for sure. Maybe I needed that. I was trying to find a quote while you were talking that I had underlined. I couldn't find it. But if I had my Kindle, I could have typed in the keyword yes. and found it. What are you reading these days So besides Harry Potter? Aside from that, so this is part of actually my racial justice practices. I have been in white evangelical Christian spaces for so long that I – a, didn't learn Black history, and B, didn't learn Black theology. And so, so much of my reading is around Black thinkers. And so I'm reading, this is mostly for research, but it's also pleasure reading. I love when the two intersect. I'm reading a biography of Ella Baker. I'm reading some anthologies of Black intellectual thought, especially in the Black power era, which is what I study. And it is so haunting life-giving, stimulating, haunting because they're talking about the same things 50, 60, 70 years ago that we're talking about now. Mm. Stimulating because it's making all these new connections in my mind about 
race, theology, religion, and just fascinating, just fascinating. And and to actually center Black people and Black thought and not just think about ourselves in relation to whiteness is one of the things that as a Black person, we need to constantly sort of remind ourselves to do. Well, I was challenged in reading your book and immediately went and bought Howard Thurman's book, Jesus and the Disinherited, because one of the questions you asked in here at the very beginning when you're talking about, you know, theology as Christians is like, I think you said in the book, like, can you name the people that you've learned the most from, like thinkers and theology? And then you said, how many of them don't look like you for me as a white person? And I literally was like, I mean, it it was a rough road for me, you know? (laughs) I mean, so many current people, you know, but like, I don't know. Anyhow, I ordered that book as soon as I was reading your book. And so I can't wait to dive into it. So I also ordered another book while I was reading your book. It was Harriet Jacobs. And she wrote down her life story and published in a book called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. And so you talk about that when you were talking about writing your racial autobiography. And so I ordered both of those books and I cannot wait to dive into them. So thank you for writing your book and suggesting. And, you know, there's tons more suggestions in there too for you guys. But those are the two I ordered right when I started reading your book. So I can't wait to dive into them. You're building your Awareness already. That's great. I'm trying, Jamar. I'm really trying hard. And so that's what we're doing. So, Jamar, thank you so much. The thing about this conversation today is, you know, we've been talking for 50 minutes and, you know, I had 12 more questions. There's so much more to talk about from your book with the different actual things that you can do. But I hope everyone picks up the book to check it out. And again, just publicly, thank you for the work that you're doing. I'm better for it. Our church is better for it. And so grateful for you. Hey, I know why your podcast is so popular. It's because you're such a great interviewer, so honest. I had so much fun on this. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Jamal. Okay, you guys, I know you took a bunch of notes. If him or I shared about anything that you need the link for, check it out in our show notes. We always have those. They are available. Go to jamieivy.com slash HH371. That is this episode number 371, and you can find all of the show notes there. Also, because you're a podcast listener, here you are listening to my show. If you want to hear a show that Jamar co-hosts, it's called Pass the Mic. Check out that show as well. Friends, thank you for listening to another episode of The Happy Hour. Today's show was edited and mixed by the team at Podshaper. The music was created for the show by Matt Graham. Show notes are written by Abby Castell, and the whole thing is put together and produced by Lindsay Sweeney. I'm your host, Jamie Ivey. And find Jamar on Instagram and Twitter and give him a follow as well. Guys, don't forget, Compliment, our new book, is released. You can get it wherever you buy books. Guys, enjoy your day. Enjoy your week. Have a happy hour with a friend. Text a friend and tell them that you're thinking about us. And tell them that you're thinking about them. And join me again for another episode of The Happy Hour this Friday. <laughs>